from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So it's been quite a year. Um, Bill is a former Canadian Air Force pilot, F-18, saw combat command in uh, the Balkans, particularly in the Kosovo campaign. Uh, Along the way, he qualified as a test pilot at Pax River, the uh, Navy um, test pilot school, since when he's flown as a test pilot on the F-16, Typhoon, and of course now the F-35. And um, Billy has... uh, told me he's going to reveal things that you haven't heard before, which is always a good start for the lecture. Billy, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Housekeeping. Uh, Roger Beasley is here. I I think I was here 25 years ago, the first time as a young test pilot. Uh, Like every pilot in here, you have big white eyes. Because there's so much of history that's there. How many pilots in the audience tonight? Okay. At least I have some reference of what we're going to talk about. I am going off the reservation in the sense of what I normally would talk about. I was in South Africa mid-October with one of my Boeing colleague friends at an aerospace lecture. And we talked about, there was a real focus on automation. You can imagine a Boeing test pilot in front of an audience of engineers and pilots. There was something that they wanted to talk about. And it really was about the notion of humans and and their perceived weakness uh, in highly advanced aircraft. And I'm going to change that paradigm because I come from a completely different mindset. And I'll relate that as we talk about uh, the F-35. My background, I am a second generation fighter pilot. I was born in Germany. My mother and father were both in the Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force in the day. My dad was an F-86 guy, and I grew up in airplanes. On Sundays after church, my father would plop me in the front seat of a Voodoo or T-33 and uh, let me do whatever you did as a kid with sticks, and I grew up around fighter jets. Uh, And then that's what stepped me down the path to become a fighter pilot. I was the very first pilot picked to fly the fourth-generation CF-18 in the Canadian Air Force, and that's entirely germane to what I talk about in the F-35 context. I grew up through that era, and as Brian said, I commanded the Canadian Forces wing of F-18s in combat over Kosovo and Serbia in 1999, before I got poached to go fly Typhoon, one of the early Typhoon test bouts. I was a German, so we never called it Typhoon, did we? My godfather flew Typhoons in World War II and strafed German tanks, so I never said it. (laughs) We called it Eurofighter. In the very early days, in the dark days of Typhoon, it since emerged to be such a fabulous aircraft. And then to Lockheed Martin, ostensibly to fly F-35, although I flew F-16s over time. Both of those matter in the context of what we're talking about here. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, I had the great honor of demonstrating the F-35 for the first time in the public domain at the Paris Air Show. I really started about three years ago developing the routine And it matters in this context because I teach every F-35 demo pilot, the one so far to date, or one and a half there's been so far, and now every year uh, train the pilots that will fly the F-35. It's an entirely different generation than I grew up in. And so I get to spend time with truly youngsters and see how they think, see how they operate the aircraft, see what they've learned over time. 
Here's my agenda, but really I'm driven to, I, wanna, I don't want to talk about capabilities so much. I'll lead into the conversation. I really want to talk about the men and women that fly that jet and the transition and the potential of what this weapon system is all about, in my mind, so dramatically different than anything anyone had touched before. And in the context of how I grew up as a fourth generation baby, uh, I, I introduced an F-18 an into an Air Force that completely missed an entire generation of third generation fighters. And so the leap was massive, transformational to the Air Force I grew up in. There were no books that mattered from the previous uh, fighters into the CF-18. And guess where we're at right now? Nothing of fourth generation matters in terms of how to exploit the F-35. So there's the generation, F-86 is the world I talked about. Uh, at third generation, we know a lot about fourth generation fighters. That's Tornado, it's Typhoon, it's F-18, it's the F-16. And then we get into the F-22 Raptor. So much of the building blocks of what F-35 is comes from the goods and the bads of F-22, right? So when I talk about sensor fusion, it began there. When we talk about the evolution of stealth, it began with F-22. And everything that we learned that worked and needed to be fixed came from those two. But they sit dominant. No one, would, no one ever questions the capability of the F-22. In 15 plus years of operational utility, it has never lost. They dominate every single time. And we needed to maximize, uh, exploit the potential of that, what that capability was. And that's part of what it is. We did so much in fourth gen fighters from what the F-16 began, great example of an aircraft to use that was a lightweight fighter with AIM-9 infrared missiles and essentially no capability beyond that in the beginning to a fabulous, truly multi-role aircraft. And it allowed us to do so many things in the airplane. There were always two major drawbacks of fourth generation fighters. It's pilot workload and then it is the human capability in the aircraft. Pilot workload. It's so much like a video game. Whether it's multiple displays, it's certainly multiple sensors, it's lots of information coming to a man and a woman, man or woman in the cockpit, and asking the human to be the synthesizer, the filter, the priority maker, and the executor of the tasks. And I don't care how good my generation was at video games, at some point the human no longer had the capacity to understand the priorities or in some cases, do the task and not put themselves at risk and not kill themselves. My course, my course started in January of 1984. The most capable pilot in my Air Force drilled himself into the tundra of the Arctic of, of Cold Lake, Alberta, in the West at 700 knots, two months into the course with his head buried in the cockpit, chasing down a radar screen, and we never found uh, the body. Our first fatality, our second fatality, came from a remarkably capable former snowbird demonstration pilot who killed himself at the end, off the end of a runway, uh, departing from an air show one day. We understood at the very beginning in the world that I grew up that pilot workload was a big deal, and we had to change that. And nothing about adding capability to that airframe or that, that generation was ever going to change the paradigm of pilot workload. And then the second part is, we've been fighting a war of attrition since any of us can ever remember. Right? That's why I'm a Cold War guy. Uh, all of us in NATO, against all of, all of those in the East Bloc, we're all going to meet somewhere in between. 
shoot missiles, take each other out. We're going to go back, refuel, and come back up one more time, and whoever was left standing would probably have uh, won the fight. That had to change. Or, it, or we'd continue this forever and ever. And stealth introduced the capability to change that paradigm. These guys, these guys fly with impunity. They're never seen, and they change the notion of exchange ratios, survivability, and lethality. Everyone thinks stealth is geometric shaping, that it has something to do with aligning leading edges or trailing edges of an aircraft. There's so much more to that. The lessons from the F-117, well, really the SR-71, 1960s era, to the F-117, seen by most of us in the first Gulf War, to the F-22, to the F-35, have taught us that shaping matters, but coatings matter. Maintaining stealth matters over time, not just when you roll it off the factory line the first time, but five years into its life, ten years into its life. In the hands of a young maintenance technician, how do you restore stealth? Is it just the geometric shaping, or have we learned about coatings, not painting? Have we learned that emissions out of the aircraft matter as much as whether you're seen on radar or not? And what do we do because I get asked a lot, what do we do with the infrared signature of that big, huge engine in the back, and how do we manage that? We have pilots in the aircraft now that fly, not just in their minds, worried about not being seen on radar, but every emission that comes from the aircraft in every spectrum, they manage every single time. We've understood that stealth and VLO, very low observable, is a no longer a trump card, but a, one of the characteristics that we manage every single day. We don't have to fly at night anymore, but we do have to manage so that no one ever sees us. And what is the result of that? What does that give us? Well, that gives us exchange ratios of better than 20 to 1. Why, why is that relevant? Any of the pilots here on your best day, on your very best day, you and your friends would have been maybe twice as good as our adversaries. Against the Russians, maybe we would have been in the Cold War era two to one against them. By the way, vastly outnumbered. And something that would never have changed until you fly an aircraft that no one can see and you decide when and where you're going to engage and you're never going to be seen. So every time you are within visual range of an adversary, you determined and directed every part of that engagement. So you're not going to get jumped before. You're not trading one to one anymore. You're slaying your adversary at ratios that are better to tw than 20 to 1. That's remarkable. That's what stealth does to you. That workload was hard. And so sensor fusion was the paradigm that was introduced by uh, Lockheed Martin years ago, really the United States government, 20 years of development, to understand how you processed information from multiple sensors around the aircraft, what you did with it to take the human out of the loop, and what should you give to the man or woman in the cockpit on a display that they would be capable of understanding? Because we already, I already said it was wildly complicated before. It was more complicated than any video game even now that exists if you gave it to the human in that format. How do you simplify the information? To understand that it is exactly precise with no uncertainty and that it's simple to understand for the man or woman looking at it to know what they should do. And sensor fusion was initially introduced in the F-22, 
And then over the years, we understood how to finesse it, how to put different sensors from the F-35, as an example, how to introduce those into the equation and then keep that sensor fusion so that the pilot only worries about what is essentially what's good or bad, what's good and not quite certain, or what's bad, and then what to do with that information. I don't care where it comes from. I truly don't care. And I don't have to worry about a radar in front of me moving it up or down, moving it in azimuth back or forth, or how far even it's looking. I just know that there's a suite of sensors and multiple spectrum that are looking at everything on the ground. Look at 30,000 feet, I'm looking out 200 plus kilometers, almost 300 kilometers in some cases. That's a lot of information coming in. And what sensor fusion does is take all that information from multiple sources and present it to the man or woman in a fashion that they understand instantly, volumes more than ever was capable. And most of us grew up with a screen that looked at our radar information in a, maybe a 45 degree cone in front of us. But now you see things behind you, behind you at remarkable distances, off to the side. And oh, by the way, you share between, in this case, Brian, myself, and two other aircraft in the formation. Oh, by the way, linked to another four ship, and you're covering vast volumes of geography wherever you fly. All of that simplified to the men and women not to suffer from the pilot workload of before. And we do every mission. So I'm an air-to-air -air guy. Where's Roger Beasley? He was an air-to-air -air guy once upon a time in the, in the F-4. We were specialists at certain mis missions. We were good at air-to-air, -air, or we were air-to-ground people. We were good at attacking air-to-ground. And we've stripped all that away. You, you do every mission now. And whatever the doctrine was before you introduced the F-35, that gets wiped away and changed. You're an air-to-air -air guy every single time. Not in the mm, June next year, Tom Cruise, Top Gun 2 coming out. Right? Right? By the way, in a Boeing aircraft, so that doesn't help me very much. Um, not, not in that era anymore. Now you're the quarterback of a mission. And the exploitation of this aircraft is not its that it's really great for F-35s against four adversaries or eight adversaries. It's really great when there's 50 people on the good guy side and 100 people on the other side. And this aircraft seeing and quarterbacking, in good American football terms, quarterbacking and managing and directing the battle because you see so much of this aircraft, not simply the execution of shooting missiles at adversaries. And then air to ground, which was a really difficult task. The Cold War era that I knew was flying down low to avoid being detected by surface-to-air missiles, surviving that, and attacking, attacking single points on the ground, even in combat. It was living in some sanctuary protected by electronic warfare assets so that I could go into Serbia and bomb an airport uh, from 20,000 feet with a laser-guided bomb. It's so far beyond that now. Remarkably lethal and effective weapons Many of them carried in an aircraft that can't be seen where you decide exactly where you're going to deliver preci truly precision weapons at, with impunity in the enemy airspace, not having to be protected every, every time you move. We created a whole generation of, geek, of geeks that were the backseaters of our fighter jets that dealt with the beeps and squeaks of electronic warfare because it was so difficult to manage everything that was seen in, in the electronic spectrum that we allowed a pilot to fly, an electronic warfare officer in the back seat to try to manage it. And we typically thought them as the higher order of geeks for all of us engineers because it was so complex to manage. 
there's an aircraft now that has the jamming capability more lethal than the platforms that I flew with in the fourth generation every single time you fly. And it gathers data in the electronic spectrum that only airliner-sized platforms were capable of managing once upon a time. Every single F-35 is more capable than we ever had in the squadrons of the Air Forces that had these kind of assets in the past. And many of the Air Forces, including mine, essentially never even knew what true electronic warfare capability is. Now it sits in every single F-35. And the mission we don't understand, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So you, with a suite of web uh, sensors in multiple spectrums that soak up and sponge data every single time you fly, you gather terabytes of data every single time from every single F-35. And if you put that F-35 along a line, a border of contention, it's looking into the enemy territory at hundreds of kilometers away, gathering data of everything, of every emission that comes from there. Oh, by the way, triangulating amongst the other F-35. So the precision of that data is remarkable. And then that data comes back on the ground, it sits, it, it is sent to the combat commander so that they can plan more effectively for future conflict, and so they can understand the battle space so much more effectively. I don't ever believe that a human in the cockpit will be able to manage what they see, but I do believe that you're going to gather data that very few nations could ever have imagined because they never had the platforms that were capable of doing that. It, it is the mission set that we, knew, we know the least of. And then we're going to operate not just uh, as we did in NATO amongst other nations, but it's with everyone in the sea. It's with uh, air, airborne commanders. It's fifth generation to fourth generation. And it's with uh, our ground forces. We, we understood that. We perfected it in the fourth generation. That's what the tactical leadership program did so well for NATO. Put different nations together for a month. Allowed them to understand each other, what the doctrine was from each nation, to learn from one another, and to operate effectively. And that's why operations like Allied Force for me and 20 years ago, Libya since then, every operation where we put ourselves in the Western world together, we were remarkably seamless, one nation to the next. That's what the beginning of interoperability was. And now we've taken it to a whole different dimension because we see so much together. We're truly seamless. Uh, I come from Canada. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an American now. Um, it's hard to get past the accent, apparently I still have one. The one term that matters to everybody is survivability. It's the one thing the F-35 brings that every single nation understands, certainly in the nation that I grew up in. It's that every man and woman is coming back every single time. Because back to that war of attrition, you can be certain that we weren't all coming home. You can be certain that when I went to combat the first night in Kosovo and a rainy night out of Aviano Air Base in Italy, I wasn't certain that we were all coming home because we didn't have the capability to survive from the surface-to-air missile threat that we were facing in the aircraft that was, in my case, poorly equipped for combat. It was so remarkably dangerous that we all had to write letters to our, our kin and then leave them with the squadron commander in case that ever happened. Well, we had to change all that, and that's what F-35 does. That 20 to 1 exchange ratio means you're coming home every time and you're not sacrificing in a war of attrition like we did once upon a time. That's where the aircraft and the, and the capability exists. 
that's the end of my conversation about capability. Because what's really interesting now, we're approaching the uh, 13th anniversary first flight, December 2006, longest test program in history. Essentially 11 years of essentially six days a week test flying uh, the best seasoned engineers in, in, in all of our air forces uh, in two parts of the United States, on the west coast at Edwards Air Force Base and the east coast at the Naval Air Station at Patuxent River outside of Washington, D.C., six days a week perfecting that aircraft and maturing it to be sent out because we knew it was going into harm's way. But 13 years later, we have now seen the second and third year of pilots that know nothing else in their lives but nine million lines of code, a helmet like Tony Stark wears in the Iron Man and Avenger movies my two boys love to watch. All they know is touch screens and magic in the aircraft. All they know is stealth. And we're now seeing the product in them. And that, to me, is the most fascinating part of it. It's not the airplane so much. I get what it can do. It's what those men and women are going to do. We've introduced... So their baseline, their baseline is an F-35. Remarkably easy to fly. Everything about it and domestic capability of what you had to monitor in the airplane is done automatically. You never look at an engine instrument. You never care... Well, you, you, you care about your fuel, right? Everybody here, pilots, have almost all run out of gas. Yeah, so you do care about fuel, but you don't care about any other stuff that we've looked about in a, in a tornado, in an F-4, in an F-18, an F-16. That's all gone by the wayside. It's done by the aircraft. All you care about is, I'm a stealth aircraft no one can see, and that's all they know. How remarkable is that? They fly an aircraft that's not a tactical fighter anymore. It is understood by every Air Force that you have introduced a strategic asset, not just because the price tag is $100 million each, but because of the capability uh, of what you're bringing in there. And we're understanding that it isn't the older generation senior leaders that have flown it, senior leaders, by that I mean majors and colonels that are flying it. The potential are the kids that are flying it. They're 26 years old with two years operational experience. They've been to combat in this airplane. They're the ones that are going to do the remarkable work of what an F-35 really was meant to do. So I can go back more than 20 years ago when I was a Typhoon test pilot speaking to engineers about the, the displays and the presentations and explaining to them that back in the day I was overloaded. But I, own, I, I did know in the day that there was some limit to what that generation of aircraft was capable of. Now we're at a point where the limitation is the, are the people that have, are the, who are flying it that have flown something else before. The limitation is not what the man or woman that knows nothing else is capable of. Those are the pros of that. All, all of pilots in here were, are going to agree with the, the next two bullets I'm going to talk about. What we can't get our hands around is airmanship and leadership in the air. You can't subjugate leadership. And what we learned in the squadrons as we grew up in, in that culture was other older men in my era, right? Older men taught us how to behave. Older men taught us responsibility. Older men taught us how to trust the person in front of you and how to gain trust from the, the other pilots who were following you. Older men taught us responsibility of having a very expensive aircraft with remarkable lethality and how to manage that and grow older than our years would have suggested. What we can't train 
as we maximize the youngins, is what I call the middle class. And that would be the, the senior captains or senior flight lieutenants, the squadron leaders and the majors on squadron. Those are the ones that flew other aircraft before. They're the ones that made all those mistakes when they were young, and they're there to impart and to mentor and to coach the youngins. We can't change that. There's no magic that you can solve in a video game that allows us to train a pilot that and miss that part. We, we don't know how to do that. We have to hope that these youngins get old enough to come back as the middle class of fighter pilots to do that. And we have to get past the, the cultures because we really, we're, we're, I can probably say this, lots of aviation fans here, the Navy's the worst culture of all. They never want to change. They do things like they did 100 years ago. And at least in the Air Forces, we, we like to think we're advanced in technologies and we buy into newer concepts. But we have a real culture of doing things the way we did it in the past. It's the way I flew a Harrier. It's the way I flew a Typhoon. It's the way I flew an F-16. And that is the cons of what help prevents us moving forward is dragging in that old culture that we had before, doing things the way we've always done them. There are four points that are really interesting about how we integrated F-35, not to repeat the mistakes of old. In the very, very beginning, the United States Marine Corps first squadron, VMFA-501, was in uh, northern Florida, Eglin Air Force Base in the northwest part of the state of Florida. So Florida, you all know, is to the south and the east. And their squadron commander had, was a Marine, but he had been a top gun uh, instructor. He had flown as a Marine Corps pilot with the United States Air Force on the F-22. So he knew what a stealth fifth generation aircraft was because he'd been allowed behind that curtain of secrets. And when he started his squadron, he didn't pull out the tactics manual from the Harrier or the F-18, which the United States Marine Corps flew. He scrapped all those and he took the F-22 Raptor playbook, football, American football playbook, and said, here's what we're going to learn. Let's be like F-22 Raptors. And so he didn't make the mistake of repeating the old. He began the entire F-35 learning of all of us nations since then, saying, we're going to think of ourselves as F-22s. How do we behave as a stealth platform? And that set us up for a lot of the success that exists today. It has been so positive for the United States Air Force integrating uh, pilots that they have uh, introduced a training uh, uh, trial where they've taken six pilots and given them 50 hours of ab initio training. That's not even full flight training. And put them on to fighter jets, the F-16, the F-15, and two of them on the F-35. Everything you ever knew about pilot training was taken away and, and they knew that they were so sharp as kids, they wanted to give them a chance to adapt to the technologies. So forget everything that we did in legacy pilot training. They were going almost immediately to these platforms. And I don't know the answer of this experiment, but I do know it's ongoing and they're finishing their training and we'll see how they work at the end. When you go to Luke Air Force Base, that's in Phoenix, Arizona, so that's the southwest side of the United States, there's essentially 100 F-35s on the ramp there. And it is the central place for not just the United States Air Force, but all the other nations to come train. An Aussie trains with a Dutch guy. Uh, uh, an Italian flies with an American every single day, seamlessly. And it is the great example of what interoperability was meant to be. 
There's no different one nation to the next. You're all flying the same capability. You're all thinking the same way. There's not an, there's not an Italian tactics doctrine and an American tactics doctrine. Everything is the same so that the, what I term the F-35 enterprise will all be the same, thinking the same way moving forward. The success of the youth is so powerful that the United States Marine Corps has changed its training doctrine, what they expect a pilot to be. So since World War I, there was a flight lead and a wingman. And the most experienced person would lead around the young pilots, the inexperienced pilots. And in, even in my era, the flight lead owned all of what you did, and he told his wingmen, one, two, or three of them, or two, well, four total, so one, two, or three wingmen, exactly what they were going to do every single time. And you essentially weren't permitted to think on your own in many scenarios. You did only what your flight lead was, told you to do. The F-35 has been so powerful, and these students, these young pilots, so remarkably capable that they've changed the doctrine. Every, every single pilot is capable of doing every single mission, every part of a mission, throughout the entire formation when they fly tactically. That means that the youngest pilot, the number four, is expected to carry the responsibility and think autonomously, just like the flight lead who has years more experience than they have. Because it, there is so much power, so much knowledge in every F-35 that they knew, they've learned, they have evolved, understanding that if the pilots, the wingmen, were limited by only doing what the flight lead told them to do, as has been the case for a hundred years, then we would have put the formation at risk and certainly never used the potential of the F-35. So the beginning training doctrine tells a young pilot from the very beginning, I expect you to perform. We, em we embrace everything you're capable of, we empower you to think autonomously on behalf of every single one. And the scenarios get so complicated that if that number four person, man or woman, fails to do their job and perform, the entire formation is at risk. It's called independent fighter pilot decision making. A complete change of the thought process that I certainly am used to in my 40 years of flying. Uh, so I'm in South Africa with a Boeing test pilot up on stage. Um, a peer of mine and he's getting peppered for all the questions you understand from two big Boeing accidents and the notion of automation and I come from the other side because I have watched F-35 pilots and how remarkable the men and women are those air show pilots that I've trained the young pilots that I've seen time and again now understanding what they're capable of and I'm not a believer that the failure of the human is because they didn't adapt I do understand the reliance of automation and I think it probably comes to training. I call them platinum thumbs, video games. So I have a 16-year-old. I, I get what every parent hates, which is a child that spends far too much time with their thumbs playing video games instead of reading a book or doing something productive with their lives. There's a whole generation that's enamored by that, maybe two generations. There's a book by a molecular biologist. His name is John Medina. It's pop psychology, if you will. It's called Brain Rules. And the part I take from, from my time with him was that it takes 150 milliseconds to execute a task in our brain. Whether you're 15 years old or 55 years old, it takes, takes that same time frame to manage something. 
And we credit the younger generation of multitasking. And we say that they can do many things at once, whether they're on computers and they're chatting with their friends and they're doing some other task, or they're uh, hopefully not driving and texting at the same time. But they're certainly walking down the streets with their head down, talking to their friends, texting and doing all those kind of tasks. It takes 150 milliseconds to do a, a single task. There is no difference between a 15-year-old doing that task and a 55-year-old. And oh, by the way, the multitasking, it takes them twice as long, as long to finish a task, and they make 50% more errors than my generation, who does a single task at a time, 150 milliseconds as the brain switches to the next task, and then completes the next task. Linear thinking, right? We give them lots of credit. What is interesting is their learning skills are that they, are, they have an appetite for this. If I put that same 15-year-old with a 55-year-old and never allowed them any skills in video gaming and, and asked them to start from scratch and learn a task, they likely would be just as competent. I just can't imagine any 55-year-old sitting in their mother's basement spending all day with a screen in front of them doing a video game. And that's why the 15-year-old who spent more time with it is better than the 55-year-old. Right? We have other things to do with our life. But we have changed because they have the aptitude, what the pilot workload limits are. We have learned what to teach them and not. And when we fail, I would submit it's because we did not understand the risks of automation. Think of the commercial accidents. We didn't teach them what we should have taught them. We assumed they would know. And the failing is on us as the adults not having introduced that. And the risk in an F-35 is that they'll be so reliant on automation that they won't know when something goes bad. But if that happens, the failure is to, on us who built the syllabus and created the structures to teach them because we weren't smart enough to have taught them what was uh, the limitation. And the limitations to what they are capable of is our old mindsets. We do things, we want to do things the way we've always done them. Heaven knows our parents, and for all of us, didn't like, I'm certain, didn't like the way we thought, the way we did things in our t time when we were young. And that certainly is the case. We... we we have a hard time getting past the culture of the way things were to maximize what the human is truly capable of. So let me finish by offering where, where this all goes. Each of those mission sets that I talked about, they're remarkably hard to do. The very, very best pilots of any era were masters at a single one of those mission sets. They were great air-to-air -air pilots or they were incredibly skilled flying low to the ground, navigating in the most difficult terrain, delivering bombs and surviving in the most uh, arduous and wildly complicated high threat scenarios. Electronic warfare was so complicated that we had two people in a fighter jet trying to manage it all and none of us have ever even pondered what it would be like to be a reconnaissance, reconnaissance platform where you, where, you, where you gathered that much data and you had to prosecute with what you had. The future of this aircraft if we're limited by the skill sets that we all had, isn't going to be near as bright as I would hope it would be. The future is in the hands of the, the youngins, if I can use an American term, of the young pilots. The future is in the hands of those fifth generation pilots. They're the ones that are going to understand what it can do. They're the different culture. It may not be, I'm going to tell you what they do on Friday night, because they don't go to the bar like I did ordering my squadron to go to the mess and drink beer one, with one another and yell at each other, eat raw eggs and whatever the antics were in everyone's particular squadron. My, I was the commander of a silver fox squadron, 
foxes eat eggs, so you can be certain that I ate lots of raw eggs as a squadron commander over the years. There's no culture like that anymore. On a Friday night, they're going to go play video games linked one to the other, and they're going gaming on a Friday night. And while I, I might have loved to talk about the days of yore and how great it was at the mess, or even in my father's era, it doesn't apply to this culture. It doesn't inspire them to anything. They have no tolerance for our old ways. And some of that is good because what's coming in the, in the technology is not this aircraft. It's been flying for 13 years. It's a marvel, and we work hard now to maximize the capabilities moving forward of what the F-35 is really going to do. We're introducing unmanned aerial vehicles. We're going to have swarms of drones controlled by those young men and women. We are going to do things in the future with weapons that we only now are trying to comprehend. And what we, if we don't have, if we're having a hard time with this understanding what this platform can do, it's just the platform. It's, it's an, an enabler of what we really want to do in the future. And the only people that are going to be capable of doing that is the next generation of, of men and women that are going to fly out there that know nothing else but platinum thumbs and nine million lines of code. They think a $400,000 helmet is an everyday affair. Yeah. Um, I grew up as the product of a fabulous generation of amazing airplanes. I had the great blessing of growing up in an F-18, flying 2,000 hours in F-16s, of being early an early Typhoon pilot. That's the, maybe uh, you would argue, the last generation of fabulous, amazing aircraft to fly. What I get to see, though, is the emergence of what is the next generation. And that's gee whiz, that's science fiction, that is um, advanced technologies that uh, are limited by our imagination. And that, to me, is such a marvel now to watch that there are young kids out there, kids, uh, uh, managing this aircraft and using it the way it was probably meant to do, meant to be, and they're going to rewrite the book of everything that we've done to this point because of the capacity that they have to the appetite they have for new technologies and what they're all capable of. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the invitation to come here to London. I always love being around here, uh, especially in this building. Thanks for your time. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.